follow Phil's prayer. I'm just going to pray for our time as we open the word. And so let's pray and then we'll look. We're going to be in Judges 4 together, but let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it teaches us and guides us, leads us, corrects us, encourages us. We pray that you do that this morning, that uh, as we open your word and we spend time in it together, we pray that you would lead and guide us through your spirit, that you would apply the eternal truths of your word to our heart, that you would help us to see you more clearly and that we would leave here uh, overcome with who you are and what you've done and that we would... uh, we would walk out living lives of joyful praise to your beauty and your majesty and your love and your mercy. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I may have shared this before at different times, or if you know me, you may have heard this before. But when I went to, uh, uh, when I graduated college about a year after, I went to Europe. And I went to Europe for uh, 50, I, w- I look back at my notebook that I took when I went, I look back at it this week. I went for 52 days. And uh, I started in Dublin, Ireland, and I ended up in Athens, Greece. And so 13 countries in 52 days. Uh, that's what Americans do. Uh, when you're young and you go to Europe, you just look at everything as much as you can in a short amount of time. And so I went all over and saw all different things. And, and as I thought back even on that trip now, uh, it makes me a little apprehensive to think that I even did that. I spent almost the whole time by myself. And so I met a lot of neat people along the way. But I went to all these countries where I didn't speak the language and didn't really have a clue what I was doing other than I knew where the train station was. And that was about it. And uh, I went all over. And and I remember as I was looking back kind of my notebook that I kept from that, there were certain cities and certain times in that trip that made me a little more apprehensive than others. And for whatever reason, uh, I, I had decided I wanted to go to Prague in the Czech Republic. And part of the reason was the architecture, uh, my undergraduate degree being in architecture, I worked for an architecture firm at the time. That's kind of how I plan my trip buildings. Uh, my wife and I, when we travel, she plans them around restaurants and I plan them around buildings. And so uh, I wanted to go to all these places. And so as I went, though, there was Prague and I was really excited about it because there were certain buildings I wanted to see and things I wanted to go there for good reason. But the city itself kind of scared me. And it was partly just the language, not knowing the language. It was kind of this mysterious place. And so as it got closer, it got to be more kind of the, the weight of it. You know, so it was kind of right in the middle of my trip and I was getting used to how the trains work. But Prague was still like this thing that was there. Like it kind of scared me a little bit. And so I remember traveling and, and I got to Hanover, Germany, which I went there to see one building. That's the only reason I went there. One building and one band, actually. One of my favorite bands was playing in Hanover, Germany. And so I planned it just right, and I went there. And I went to this concert, and the, the band was actually from Texas. And I started talking to the guy that was, yeah, you go to Germany to see a band from Texas. The only time I ever saw him, too, but that doesn't matter. Uh, but I go there, and I talk to the guy who is their tour manager, who's also from America, and he speaks good English. And so we ended up being... Uh, just kind of hitting it off and talking. And he asked me all about my trip. And I said, I'm traveling all over. And I said, I'm going to, he said, well, where are you going next? And I said, I'm going to Prague. And I said, I'm a little nervous about it. And he got this big grin on his face. And I said, what? And he said, I- I've lived in Prague for the last two years. And I live there now. And he starts to tell me all about it. And he goes, oh, it's an awesome city. And this is great. And this is what the train station's like. And this is where you should go. And this is where you should stay. And this is what you should do. And the people will be wonderful. So when you get to the train station, there'll be people that want to take you to their hotels. They'll meet you there. And he said, they're legitimate. They'll have ID. They'll show you. It's like getting in a taxi in the U.S. It's nothing to be worried about. And so I got to Prague and there was a guy waiting that spoke perfect English. And he said, I'll take you to my hotel. And he took me to his hotel. It was a four-star hotel for $18 a night. 
And so it was wonderful. And so Prague ended up being great and all these things. But I remember back how God kind of placed that guy in my path that just eased all my anxiety about going to Prague. There he was telling me, oh, I live there and it's wonderful and it's great. And as I thought about that, I thought, man, wouldn't that be nice if we had someone in our life like that for this world? Right? Everything that's swirling and going around right now, the economy or the government or just the way culture is going, the way things are, someone to come alongside you and go, hey, I've been there and it's okay. And this is, it would just be wonderful to have someone like that. And I was thinking about that this week, that concern and the anxiety that kind of comes over those concerns. And, and then I started thinking about Judges 4, all this in connection, as we're going to look at Judges 4 today, which if you want to follow along in the Bibles in your queue, it's on uh, page 131 if you use the Bibles that are there. We often say if you don't have a Bible and you're visiting here today, take that one with you. We'd love for you to take one of those as a gift from us. But if you want to follow along, it's on page 131. But as I've started to look at this story in Judges, what you see is you come across a guy that has a similar sense of intrepidation about what's going on, a similar anxiety that's there, but for much better reason than me being uh, worrisome about Prague. Uh, It's a guy who's being called to battle against a great army with great odds stacked in his favor. And we're going to look at this story in Judges chapter 4. And as we do and as we look in Judges, we've been in it for a couple weeks now. When we get to Judges 4, we actually see a very unique story in Judges chapter 4. Unique partly in that it's in Judges chapter 4 and in Judges chapter 5. It's in both. You see the same story in two consecutive chapters here. Judges 5, though, is a song or a poem that's talking about what happened in Judges 4. And so you see a retelling, one, a historical account of what happened, one, a very poetic account of what happens, which, which really uh, focuses more on the theological side of things, what God was doing and how he was working. And so it's a, it's a unique uh, story. And it's also unique for the book of Judges because when we read through Judges, oftentimes what we see is a military leader that ascends to power and says, come follow me and let's go do this. And that's the way God uses and works in this period. But in our story today, we see three main characters and two of which are not what you would normally think of in the book of Judges. And so it's kind of a unique story in that uh, sense. And so as we look at this today, I want you to think instead of I often ask two or three questions and we seek to answer them from the text. That's kind of the way my mind works. If you've been here, you know, that's what we normally do. I'm not really going to do that today, but what we're going to do is we're going to look at these three main characters. We're really just going to look through this story and we're going to focus on these different characters. And as we do, I want you to be just thinking about a couple of questions, even though we're not doing the questions today. I just can't get away from the questions And so uh, as we go through it today, I want you just to be thinking these two things. One of these three characters, and they're very different, who do you most identify with? And maybe it'll be a little bit with each of them, but who do you most identify with? Who do you kind of see yourself as in this story? And then secondly, how do we see God working through these people and how he's working in this story? And I want you just to be thinking about those things as we work our way through this story. And so... How I often think when I'm reading, especially in the Old Testament, especially in these very historical narratives, is I think very cinematic in my mind. Like I I like movies a lot. I almost went to film school a long, long time ago. Uh, I took a couple of film classes in college just because I enjoyed it. So I often think of these stories in in the sense of, of movies. And main characters and what's going on and the way they enter and exit. And and I guess what I like 
about Judges 4 and 5 here, this particular story, is it doesn't fit the formula of the normal story. Right? If, if you know what I mean. If you watch today uh, trailers for movies, you watch them and almost immediately, or I do, maybe I'm just really cynical, but I watch a two-minute trailer and I go, yeah, I know exactly what's going to happen in that movie. Right? There, there's this formula that Hollywood kind of, there's, there's really only like three movies. Right? They just use the same formula and they do it a little different here and a little different there. And then every once in a while, there's some different ones that come in that, that kind of break that cycle. I like those kind of movies. It, it frustrates my wife. She says I like really weird movies. And, and, and I do. I, I kind of like movies that aren't the most predictable. And I think that's kind of why I like Judges 4. It's not that predictable in terms of the way Judges goes. It's actually kind of different. And so I want us to walk through this today. And there are parts of Judges that we're going to see, as we've talked about the last few weeks, that are repeating, that are uh, somewhat predictable. We do see. You know, we would say uh, when, uh, when we think of a fairy tale, how does a fairy tale start? When we say that, we say, once upon a time, right? You, you just know that inherently that's the way a fairy tale starts. Well, when you're reading the book of Judges, it has its own once upon a time. But if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, you'll see it. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the once upon a time of Judges. Kind of depressing, isn't it? But that's what we see over and over. That's kind of the summary statement of Judges. And we see that right here, that as it begins, that we see that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They ignored God again and again. And we see this over and over. You know, the last three weeks, we've really talked about some foundational lessons the last three weeks that we see repeating over and over in Judges. And if you've been here and you've been following, you'll actually see them right here in the first three verses of Judges 4. Like it says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Ehud was one of God's judges that he used to lead revival. And so what we see right here in the very first verse is they did evil again in the sight of the Lord. That is, they decided to ignore what God had told him and they disobeyed. And it causes problems. That's what we looked at the first week. The excuses we make for our disobedience. That was our first week. And then it says that happened uh, after Ehud died. We looked at that last week. We see this cycle repeating over and over because of very poor discipleship. And so things were going good for a time because Ehud is there and he's leading and he's the judge. But as soon as he dies, it goes right back into the cycle. And then you see the other thing. The, the second week we looked at right here in verses 2 and 3. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Cana, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harish Hagom. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. And so what you see is the consequences of their sin. God allows them to be sold into the hand of Jabin the king. And what it does, and this is what we talked about a couple weeks ago, is that consequences are there as a means of God's grace. It turns the people back to cry out for God because they now see how poor things are because they've ignored them. And so that's our first three weeks that we looked at. And we see this repeating over and over and over again in Judges. We see this cycle over and over. And so parts of that are very much like what we've talked about. But then we get to verse 4, and this is where this story goes off, right? Instead of following the formula, this is where Judges 4 becomes very different than the rest of Judges. 
And so before we move to verse four, just let me point out to you one more thing here in this introduction part of the of the chapter. Verse three tells us that they are oppressed by these people uh, under Jabin, the king of Canaan, and they're oppressed because they have nine hundred chariots of iron. And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, the very first week we talked about how Israel did not drive out the people of the land because they couldn't overcome iron chariots. Right. That was Judah's excuse for his disobedience. Oh, we can't do that. They've got iron chariots. And here they are again. And so we're going to see how it works out this time. But that's just a reminder of what we've already looked at. And so as we get into this story, three main characters, you're introduced to the first in verse four. So read with me verses four and five. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. And she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her. For judgment. And so if you know anything about judges, this should sound off as something's different here than the rest of judges. Judges is usually a guy who is a military leader who says, come follow me. We're going to do this. And all of a sudden we start here and it's Deborah. And she's not a military leader. She's not saying, come follow me. She's sitting under the tree, guiding the people, uh, working, judging in Israel through wisdom, through discernment through people coming and asking her questions and listening to her. It's very different. Suddenly the formula is very different here and what's going on. And so here's Deborah judging in this way. Oftentimes it kind of blows out of the water what we normally say about judges. Judges, we often say, well, judges is not judges like you think judges. Someone who sits and gives uh, their verdict on things and tells it's warriors. But then we get to Judges 4 and here's the lady sitting giving her judgment and telling and speaking through wisdom. So this is kind of like uh, the exception to the rule in the book of Judges. And so you have Deborah sitting there and she, you see her role as she's calling, uh, she's giving uh, wisdom, she's talking to people, she's helping them walk through decisions. And then look at what the rest of it says there. So in verse 6, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinom from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you go gather the men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the king of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. And so what we see of Deborah is she's a wise woman who people are coming to her for her wisdom and she's making wise judgments and she's talking to people. But then she's also going and she's calling out different people to obedience. Barak, hasn't God told you to do this thing? And so what we see with Deborah is she's a very wise woman who's walking with the Lord, who's hearing from him, but not only hearing from him, but she's seeking to help other people do the same thing. And so when we see Deborah here and we start to think about, well, who do you identify? I just want to ask, do you identify with Deborah? Do you know the Lord? Do you hear him on a regular basis? Are you walking with him daily? And if so, are you looking to help other people do the same thing? Because that's really what we see here of this wise woman who's walking with God. You know, we talked about last week not having a second-hand intimacy with God where you only know God through other people, but a first-hand intimacy. And we see that with Deborah, a first-hand intimacy, and she's seeking for others to have the same. She calls Debrack and says, haven't you heard from God? You need to be obedient. And so you see her helping other people in that. 
There's, there's confidence from the people when she speaks that she's hearing from God. Maybe you know people like that in your life, and you hear them say something, and you go, yes, that's the way, right? There's different people that we listen to or different wisdom that you hear, and you recognize it, and you go, yes, I want to hear what he has to say. Uh, I was thinking, as I thought about that, I was thinking of a pastor named Eugene Peterson, if you've ever heard of Eugene Peterson. He's, he's 80, uh, I think he's 82 years old now, and he's written a bunch of books, and he's a pastor for 50-something years. And I've seen different times where he'll give talks and you can watch them online. And if I know it's going to be on, I make a point to listen to it. It's listening to wisdom. The guy sits there and just talks and you hear of the wisdom of of the way God is working in his life. And I think of him like this. And so I just want to ask that question. If you relate to her and the odds are, if you relate to Deborah, you probably don't see yourself that way. (laughs) If you're a very wise person, you probably don't go look at how wise I am. It's other people around you that recognize it and come to you and seek you out. And so the first person we see here is Deborah. And she's wise and she's calling other people to obedience and she's seeking to help them follow the Lord. But that's not all. Because look at what happens here. So she calls Barak to come. Now, he's the military leader. He's our second character. We'll get to him in just a second. But she calls him and she tells him, hasn't God told you to go do this thing? Right? And he gives kind of a answer we'll talk about in just a second he says uh i will go if you go with me but if you will not go with me i will not go that's his answer so she says hasn't god told you to do this and he goes if you'll go with me i'll go but what i want you to is we're still looking at deborah look at what she says in verse nine and she said i will surely go with you i want you just to think about that for a second right here's this godly woman that's seeking to call other people to obedience People are coming to her for her wisdom. She's pointing them to what God's doing. But not only that, when push comes to shove, she says, yes, I'll go with you. I will go and walk this out with you. I'm not going to just call you to obedience and tell you what to do. I'm going to walk it out with you. It's not, it is not do as I say, not as I do. It's do as I say, and I will do it with you. I'll go with you and I'll be there in this with you. And so when we see Deborah, she's the first character in this story, the first person we see. And she's the judge at this time, and she's working and she's doing these things, but she's not alone. She's not the only character. Oftentimes in Judges, it's one person that leads the revolt and lets go, but not the case here. The second character we see is Barak, which we just got introduced to, because she says, Barak, hasn't God talked to you and told you to do this? And so he comes. And he comes to her and she calls him out and says, hasn't God told you to do this? And Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road to which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out, Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh and 10,000 men went up at his heels and Deborah went with them. And so we're introduced to Barak. He's the military leader. He's what we normally think of in Judges. He's the guy that says, let's go. I'll lead it. Let's follow. But he's kind of not that way. Or when we're first introduced to him, he's kind of not that way because his answer is, well, I'll go if you go with me. And if you don't, I don't think I'm going to go. And so you go, well, wait a second. He's not the mighty warrior that says, let's go. I've got this and follow me. He's kind of a guy that seems to be a little unsure of what he's doing. Right. If you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't now, 
there's two ways you can look at Barak. And I'm going to let you, you're going to have to make the decision because I can't tell you for certain. But there's two ways that oftentimes we look at Barak. And one of them is that he says uh, when she calls him to it, he really is unsure. He kind of has a crisis of faith here. He goes, I don't know. If you go with me, I'll go. But if you won't, I'm not going to go. And that's the way we kind of look at it sometimes. Maybe he's waffling just a little bit. Or it could be that, that Barak knows that Deborah is hearing from the Lord. He knows that she has wisdom. He knows that people are coming to her for judgment. And he doesn't want to go up to battle without her. And he says, well, you've got to come with me. I want God in this. And so I want you to come with me. Now, it depends on how you read it. Because some people read it the first way and they say he's waffling. And so she says, you're not going to get the glory for the battle because that's what she tells him. We're going to go up and we're going to do this thing, but you're not going to get the glory. Kind of like it's a punishment. You waffled so you don't get the glory now. Or it's, and I'll be honest, this is the way I read it. This is the way I think of it when I read it, is that he wants her with him because she's hearing from God. I want you along in this. I'm not going, if God's not coming up with us, that you're coming with me. And I see that with Barak because the next thing, one, he wouldn't be inviting her to come for military expertise. That's not who she is. Why would that make him feel better other than that she's hearing from God? But then the second thing when she says, and you're not going to get the glory. But then the very next verse, it says they arose and went and Barak called all the men and said, let's go. And so what I see in Barak is he gets this, the word that we're going to do this and God's going to win this battle and we're going and you're not going to get the glory. And he's OK with that. I will go. And even though I'm not going to get the glory, I'm still going to go. And so when we look at Barak, I just want to ask, and I started at the beginning, who do you most identify with? Are you like Barak? Where you go, I'm not exactly sure. Or you've got questions or you want other people to go with you. Yes, I see what God's telling me, but I'm not exactly sure what this looks like or how this should work. Uh, I think that's all of us a lot of the time, if we're honest. We see things God is calling us to. And yes, I need to know how I want to do this. And I want to walk this out, but I'm not sure how to do it on my own. Will you go with me? And so my answer, if you relate to Barak, is look around the room. You're not called to go on your own. Right? We've been talking about that so much lately that God puts us in a community of believers together and calls us to obedience. And we're supposed to walk that out together. You're not called to go off on your own and do it on your own, but he brings people into your life to help you. He brings Deborahs into your life that are wise and have been there and seek that you seek wisdom from and they help you. And the good thing is there's a lot of people right here in this room that are like that, that have been following God for a long, long time. And God puts us together in those ways. And so what we see with Barak as we look at him is he's facing incredible odds. Even if he is waffling, it's for pretty good reason. 900 iron chariots. That's kind of like saying, I want you to get 10,000 guys together and get your sticks and the weapons you have, and we're going to go fight that army over there with a bunch of tanks. That's kind of what they just said to him, right? And so you could understand if he is waffling a little bit and he's going, I'm not sure how this is going to go. You could see why. But when we come out with Barak, what I want you to see is even though there's these odds and even though these things are in front of him, he's obedient. He goes, OK, right later, earlier in Judges in chapter one with Judah, we saw that he went, I can't do that. And they stopped and they didn't drive the people out. But here Barak goes, OK, I'll do it. 
And so he goes up and look what happens when he's obedient and he's following and he's being encouraged. And so verse 14, Deborah said to Barak up for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Right. And so what happens is he goes into this battle with these incredible odds and they say it's a blowout. That God calls him to it and he's obedient. And even though his common sense, we looked at that a couple weeks ago, his common sense says this is not going to go good. Nine hundred iron chariots. God wins hands down. And it's easy. It's a blowout. It says they routed them. And, and the, the leader, the general, the main guy of the other army takes off and runs. And so that's kind of where we are in the story with the first two characters. Deborah, who's the wise one, kind of giving her, her leadership and, and her wisdom. And Barak going, yes, I will follow and I will be obedient and I will go. And then uh, you get to the battle and it's this huge battle and they win. Blowout. That's where the Hollywood in movie ends, Right. That's what, ha- what would happen in the Hollywood movie is Barack would go in and he'd kill everybody by, by himself and he'd do somersaults and he'd flip over them and he'd kill them all and then he'd stand up and he'd say, are you not entertained? And that would be the end of the movie, right? That would kind of be the way it would go in Hollywood. But in this story, the, the captain uh, of the army gets away. Sister runs. And yet there's another person that comes in. And so instead of it just being the military judge like we see in the rest of judges, it's different here. And he runs and he takes off. And then all of a sudden we're introduced to this woman, the second woman. And that's why I said judges is different. Usually it's a guy, military guy leading it. But now we've got Deborah, the first woman that's very wise and leading her counsel. And then we have another woman. And so look at what it says in verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And so what happens is that the military general flees and he runs off and he comes to this tent because he knows that they're friendly with his, with his faction there. And he runs up to the tent and he asks, he says to this woman, Jael, she goes out to meet him and, and look at verse 18. And Jael came out to meet Sister and said to him, turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me and do not be afraid. And so he turned aside to her and came into the tent and she covered him with the rug. Please give me some water for I'm very thirsty. And so she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And so as we get to this point in the story, all of a sudden we're introduced to this woman, Jael, who's essentially a homemaker. That's, that's what we see in the story. She's the husband of Haber. That's all we know. She's at home in her tent. That's all we know about her. And when we're reading through, you can see you've got Deborah, who is the prophetess that people are coming for miles to hear her judgment. You have Barak, who is the strong military leader. And then we have what seems to be a very peripheral character in JL that's just the homemaker off on the side. And, it, and, and you can fall into thinking like that and think that she's just kind of over here. She's not really a main character. That's not what's going on. But I want to just point out to you that is not true. That's not true at all. God doesn't have any children that are peripheral children. 
He doesn't have peripheral characters in his family. He has a plan and a, and a way to use all of us in all different ways, no matter where he's placed you. And so she's not a peripheral character over here on the side. She's a very important character in the way God's working this out. And so then you look and you say, well, what happens next? And the answer is, Judges happens next. If you've read the book of Judges, this is what happens in Judges. Right? Look at verses 21 and 22. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and then she went softly to him, and she drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. She nailed him to the floor. Literally. She went up and she nailed him down to the floor. That's what she did as he's sleeping. And then I love the, the rest of that verse. And he died. Like we needed that. <laughs> like we were unsure until it says, oh, and by the way, he died. Yeah, the, the temple went through his temple into the floor and now he's dead. And so then it says, uh, and, and behold, Barak was pursuing Sisera. And Jael, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come and I will show you the man whom you're seeking. I just stopped there for a second because I... Hey, I found him, right? And you can imagine Barak walking in and going, whoa, wait a second. What happened? Right? He comes in and finds her and it's ended. She's put an end to the battle. It's over. And it's exactly what Deborah said at the beginning. You're going to go up and you're going to do this, but you're not going to get the glory. God's going to give him into the hand of a woman. And all of a sudden you can see Barak kind of going, Okay, okay, he's starting to put it all together and to see it. And so the story comes to an end with there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple, right? That's the weird movie that I like. Sorry, but that's why my wife and I are at odds on movies, because I'd be like, yes, this is the movie I want to see. And she'd go, oh, this is why are we watching this? But there it is. It's not the typical the layout that you see in Judges. You've got Deborah that you would think, yes, she's wisdom and she's following. And then you've got Barak that you think, yeah, he's going to do the work. He's the guy here. He's the one that's going to do it. And then you get Jael, who seems like the total peripheral character out here on the side. And maybe as you sit here today and I ask you which character you most relate to, you relate to Jael. And you go, yeah, yeah, sometimes I feel like that. Like I'm the peripheral character over here on the side. And I'm not the one that people are seeking wisdom from. And I'm not the one out leading the charge. And I'm not doing those things. I'm driving the kids to soccer. Right? Or or you go, man, I've got to go to work today and I've got so much to do. I don't have time to do these other things. And I just want you to see so clearly here that God has placed you right where he wants you. And he has uniquely gifted you for exactly where he's placed you. You are not a peripheral character. God has a plan to use you in his story. And sometimes we don't know how that's going to be. And sometimes we think, man, my, my role is smaller than that role over there. That's a lie. God's got a way that he wants to use you right where you are. And I love this story because it's not the typical. You think, well, now it's the mighty warrior who does it. It's the lady over here in the tent. The interesting part is of of her story, she would have been very good with taking up and putting down tents. That was part of her job. Right? That's what she knew. She knew how to use a hammer and a big spike. 
And so God even uses that in this story. And so you get this picture. And so you get these three characters all uniquely gifted in different ways and how God is using them together. And we can get to the end of the story and we can go, well, all the things that we don't understand, how they're going and how they're going to working out. And we could look at the story and we could go, but look at how God's uniquely gifted us. And if we lock arms, we can do much more together than we can on our own, which that's true. But we would miss the point of the story if we just stopped right there. Right? Oh, we can do great things together. Very true, but that's not the whole point of the story. I said at the beginning there's three characters. There's actually four. There's a fourth character that's actually the main character in the story all the way through the story. If you're watching and you're really looking, right? we talked about the three and how you most relate to them. But there's a fourth story. And just look real quickly. We'll do this very quickly. As you read through this whole story, verse, start in verse 6. Has not, as she says to Barak, Deborah to Barak, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you to go do this? Verse 9, it says, and she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which we are going uh, will not lead to your glory. And then listen to what she says. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of the woman. Or then you get to verse 14. And Barak, Deborah says to Barak, up, oh, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Verse 15, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army. And then you get to the end of the story in verse 23 says, so on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Cana, before the people of Israel. The main character in the story is God. God is the one doing this. And yes, he works in all different ways. And yes, he gifts us and he calls us to be faithful in where he's placed us. But he is sovereign and he's in control. He's the one doing the work. And when you flip over to chapter 5 and you start to read through the account that's there, the very poetic, beautiful account, you get to verse 20. And it says, From the heavens the stars fought from their courses. They fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Do you know what that's saying? Right, when he looks at the picture of Barak and he's not sure how this is going to go, it says right in the beginning uh, in verse 7, when she speaks to Barak, she says, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon and his chariots. And his troops, and I will give them into your hand. When we read the song that tells us what happens, what it tells us, how did they overcome 900 iron chariots? God drew them out by the river, the, the clouds opened, the rains came down, and they got stuck. God defeated them. God did it. Not Barak, not Deborah. Not Jael, although he used all of them in his plans, but it's God who is the one who's doing it. God is the one who's sovereign. God is the one who is in control. And so when I think about the guy that I come across in Prague, right, on my way to Prague, and he goes, I've been there. Ah, it's not scary. You're going to have a great time. It'll be wonderful. And the things you're going to do, it'll be great. It's not bad at all. Right? And when we look at this story, what we see is God saying, I am the first and the last, what we read from Isaiah 41 this morning. I am over and under and through all of this. 
You see, the main character in the story of Judges chapter 4 is the main character of your story today. And he's still in control. And he's still sovereign. And he's gone before you. And he's already there in the end. He is the first. And he is the last. And no matter what you see playing out before you, he's already there and he's already won. And he proved it on the cross when he came and he defeated sin and death and he did it for you. And so when we look at all the things that throw us off and we go, man, how is that ever going to work out? God goes, I'm going to work it out. Go read Judges 4 and look what I did there. Right? Flip open uh, to Exodus and watch what I did with the Israelites. Watch it how I spread my church across the face of the globe with 11 guys that no one else would have ever picked in the world. And suddenly you go, yeah, the main character is still the main character today. And there's nothing that is outside of his control. So I'm going to end with this, just this, this quote. It's actually in your bulletin. And it's from Eugene Peterson that I mentioned before. But listen to what he says and we'll end with this. When we submit our lives to what we read in Scripture, we find that we are not being led to see God in our stories, but our stories in God. God is the larger context and plot in which our stories find themselves. That's what you see in this story, is it not? That it's all God's doing and he is in control and he is sovereign. And we get swept up in what he's doing when we're obedient to him. We don't have anything to worry about because the main character is still the main character and he will always be the main character. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for these stories. We thank you for the way that you were moving some uh, 3,000 plus years ago. And you are still moving today. You are still moving in ways that we cannot fathom and we cannot understand. But that you are in control and that you are sovereign and that you have a plan that you want to use each and every one of us, no matter how you've gifted us or how we're different or the ways that you've called us, but that you want to use us in your sovereignty, that you love us and that you include us in your plans. I pray that you would help us to be obedient to what you've put right in front of us that we would seek to trust you in all things and following you wherever you lead. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.